second week of Rare Book School 1986. Let me begin, as is the custom, by selling things. Me and Johnny Carson. Uh, two years ago, at this forum, Bernard Breslauer spoke on the uses of bookbinding literature in a lecture that there was general agreement uh, should be published, and indeed it now has been. This is a review of the history of the literature of bookbinding, a quite evaluative review, together with a long and detailed list of the books mentioned in the prose part of the lecture uh, following immediately thereafter. The printing you, those of you who know how the Book Arts Press prints, the printing you will be relieved to know was not done at the Book Arts Press. It was done by the Meriden Steinauer Company, and I think, uh, or hope at least, you'll all agree that they did very well by us indeed. Many of you are friends of the Book Arts Press. I suggest that you do not buy the copies because an offer will be made to you by mail that you will find difficult to refuse as regards the purchase of this pamphlet. Uh, those who would, however, like to buy a copy, they are for sale and will be for sale directly after this lecture in the shop for $10 a piece. We have had in the past Book Arts Press aprons, which look like this. In the press of renovation, our apron order did not get off as fast as we wanted it to at a time when every summer camp on earth is ordering, if not aprons, at least t-shirts from our apron company, with the result that our aprons are not yet here and indeed won't be here for another couple of weeks. You may, however, for Jerry's at seven or eight dollars a piece. For eight dollars a piece, a nominal fee, I'm sure you'll agree, place orders for aprons, and if you don't want to bother with it here, rest assured you'll certainly be getting something in the mail after you get home. The 1986 aprons will look just like this, except that they will be white with blue lettering rather than the blue with white lettering. There is also a variety of Rare Book School t-shirts, which you can see there, which are white with the watermark lion in blue, uh, in sizes small, large, and extra large. We've run out of medium. No one has been able to tell the difference between medium and large, however, and uh, Dorothy Romney says that everybody is wearing extra large anyway. Uh, those are available for $5 a piece if anyone would like one. The second lecture of this week, the second formal lecture, will be held on Wednesday in this room at 6 o'clock in which Howard and Catherine Clark of the Twin Rocker Handmade Paper uh, Operations in Brookston, Indiana, will be speaking on the 15 years of their involvement with handmade paper in America. And there will be the usual course of lectures during the remaining two weeks after this one of Rare Book School 1986, which I think you're all familiar with. Tonight, it's my great pleasure to welcome back one of our most reliably excellent speakers and one who certainly needs no introduction to this audience, the San Francisco book collector and uh, collector William Barlow, who will be speaking on the uses of antiquarian catalogs. And it's a great pleasure to welcome him here and to present him with a copy of the Breslauer pamphlet. Sure. I'd probably be better off if I read this instead of what I've got in here, but... Uh, this being July 7th, I suppose there's no need to relate 
my speech to the Statue of Liberty in any way, and so I won't. Uh, actually, I was inspired to uh, give this speech by two or three different things. The first thing that inspired me to give the speech was that uh, Terry Bellinger called me uh, two or three weeks ago and asked if I would give one. And since I was going to be here, I said I would. Uh, the other thing that, the next thing that inspired me was the fact that there was a course which began today on the evidence of ownership, and that uh, uh, led me to comment on one of the most important research tools in working with provenance, and that certainly uh, includes uh, the antiquarian book catalog. I'm also inspired in talking about antiquarian book catalogs uh, because I've been working in this area for some time, past year or two, and I think with an audience of this sort, one should generally talk about something one is familiar with, uh, especially when the people in this room probably collectively know more about the subject than I do. Uh, I'm also, because uh, Terry didn't give me too much time to prepare, I am working from an outline and uh, that way I think I can probably occupy enough time that there will be little or no time left for questions. <laughs> now I, I do, before I get started, I do want to make another note and that is that uh, if you got the little announcement, the very little announcement actually, uh, Terry labeled this talk, The Uses of Antiquarian Catalogs, C-A-T-A-L-O-G-S, and with your indulgence, throughout this evening I will be discussing C-A-T-A-L-O-G-U-E-S. <laughs> I hope that all of you are familiar with Archer Taylor's book catalogs, their varieties and uses, which uh, set down, as the title indicates, the varieties and uses of catalogs of private libraries. For those of you who are not familiar with book catalogs, their varieties and uses, it's an octavo about this size and about this thick with a blue cloth cover. Some time ago, St. Paul Bibliographies proposed to reprint the book and asked me to do a new introduction. The first question that you have to ask when you're, they're talking about reprinting a book is whether it should be reprinted. Have things changed so much that it is no longer of any value, for example? Tentatively, I think the answer in looking at Archer Taylor is yes, that it, it does deserve to be reprinted. The next question is, if it does deserve uh, reprinting, should it be in a revised edition or perhaps a whole new book on the same subject would be more appropriate? Uh, the answer to that question is that maybe that is what's required or what is called for, but uh, you have to recognize that only a reprint was to be paid for, and that has to enter into the calculations. Complicating the issue is uh, my finding when I started rereading the book, perhaps I should say reading the book, because it's not one that uh, anybody very often reads all the way through, is that the book contains a lot of errors. Uh, the discovery and correction of errors in a book of this sort substantially delays getting a reprint out and it may even frustrate the issuing of reprint altogether. Uh, I understand, for example, that uh, one reason uh, that uh, Pollard and Ehrman has not been reprinted is the need to make corrections, and uh, indeed uh, 
that's a book that deserves reprinting at least as much as Archer Taylor. Uh, if a reprint really is needed to satisfy demand, then what happens if you issue the reprint without the necessary corrections? Uh, you'll probably saturate the market so that the corrections are never made at all. And if you issue it without corrections and then put a caveat that you haven't looked for corrections and this is the way it was and that's the end of that, uh, no doubt most people will look at the reprint as if uh, they'll make the assumption that there are no corrections to be made. Uh, because chances are most people will never read the introductions. <clears throat> now, I've used the term antiquarian book catalogs in the title of this talk, which encompasses a number of different kinds of catalogs, and it's useful to know what we're talking about. Taylor uses the term catalogs of private libraries uh, to cover any type of catalog which includes a private library, auction catalogs, booksellers catalogs, private privately issued catalogs. Referring to all of these as private library catalogs is, uh, would be fairly misleading now. I don't think it was quite so much when he used it. Auctions, for example, are now more often than not anonymous sales, mixed sales, or only portions of a library. Uh, most major auction houses won't take an entire uh, collection. A couple of years ago, we had the example of the James Gilvary Library, for example, where the lesser books went to Swan and Christie's took the what they thought were the most important books. Uh, Pollard and Ehrman uh, deals with many different types of catalogs, too, not all of which can be described as antiquarian. For example, they talk about publishers' catalogs, printers' lists, Frankfurt Book Fair catalogs, prospectuses, trade references, uh, which are not antiquarian. Uh, the principal antiquarian catalogs that they uh, use, that they describe, are the following categories. Ones I would regard as partly antiquarian and partly not. The English Latin trade catalogs, 17th century catalogs, uh, such as the 1674 Scott catalog, probably the best known. Uh, which had books dating from 1507 to 1673. Those were import catalogs, essentially. Uh, you have retailers' reference books like uh, Andrew Monsell, Catalog of English Printed Books, 1595, where the references go back 50 years before that date. Then there are some that are substantially all antiquarian, such as inventories, both in manuscript and printed, booksellers' catalogs, auction catalogs, private libraries open to scholars and personal libraries, either manuscript or printed. Uh, the kind of, uh, in my own library, I usually identify uh, catalogs in a little different order. Uh, private library, which includes manuscript and printed inventories, and that's a fairly dubious classification, but since we rarely have manuscript or printed inventories anymore, it's as good a place to throw them as any instead of into, into a separate category. Manuscript private library catalogs, printed private library catalogs, institutional bequests, gifts, or purchase of private libraries, and modern reconstructions. Then auction catalogs, book dealer catalogs, institutional library catalogs, which can be subdivided into general and special collections, and exhibit catalogs. Uh, antiquarian catalogs are those which represent an actual library 
collection or accumulation of books, generally all in one uh, in existence at one place at one time, but that's not always true either. Uh, this would exclude books that might better be described as bibliographies or checklists, and if it isn't obvious, the term antiquarian refers to the books in the catalogs, not to the catalogs themselves, although obviously they are uh, in, they often are both. Uh, Archer Taylor discusses a number of uses of catalogs, most of which I will leave you to discover yourself in the reprint if you don't have the original. I will, however, discuss a few that stem from some of the modern catalogs which he didn't uh, deal with and some uses that Taylor only touched on. Taylor dealt primarily with the classified catalogs of the 16th to the 18th centuries. And his description of the scholarly uses that, uh, that he found or suggestions for uh, possible scholarly uses primarily flowed from the classified nature of the catalogs that he was dealing with. Uh, modern catalogs are largely unclassified uh, and they suggest actually additional usages. Uh, one thing you find in modern catalogs are over catalogs of the 17th and 18th century is improved descriptions. You might not think so based on what you see in some of the catalogs these days, but you ought to see what the 17th century reader had to deal with as a description. You know, they would very, they'd be lucky if they got the title of the book and the author, often not even the date and sometimes not even the size. Uh, so you do have improved descriptions. You may have bibliographical facts mentioned that are not available elsewhere. Sometimes, of course, these are not available elsewhere because they're wrong, and you have to take that into account. Uh, an example from my own collecting area of Baskerville, uh, which I n uh, watched go through catalogs for a number of years, perhaps about 20 years, is a reference uh, on the um, Orlando Furioso of 1773, the Baskerville edition. In the plate to the can uh, Canto 43, which Bartolozzi engraved, uh, there are some very light words engraved on the tomb which have no relationship to the text. The story is, and it doesn't, isn't too hard to believe, is that Molini, the publisher, was bearing down on Bartolozzi to complete the uh, engravings for the edition. Uh, which were running way behind schedule, and uh, in his uh, in, in a gesture of revenge, uh, Bartolozzi engraved some uh, descriptions of his publisher on the tomb. Uh, now these are not easy to read, uh, and that's only the story. I think it makes sense though, because in fact Baskerville finished printing uh, the Orlando Furioso about 1771, and the the date on the title page is 1773. There are some dated 1771, and some of the plates are dated as late as 1774. So Molini had his money tied up, presumably in all these sheets of paper for three or four years before the book actually came out with the illustrations. In any case, a catalog description repeated in several Park Burnett catalogs beginning in the early 1940s, and which I last saw in a Mags catalog in 1959, said, it describes the, that the plate 
1843 is in the earliest state with the words Bassino Poltron engraved lightly on the tomb. And then it goes on to say, these words were taken out before the larger portion of the impression were struck off. Well, there's a couple of things wrong with that. First, the words are described in Strauss and Dent as Dacino poltrone animale, um, which makes more sense. I say that that's what Strauss and Dent, who were the bibliographers of the first bibliographies of Baskerville, say that they are, because I can't really read the third word at all in any of the copies I've seen. I don't think there's an E on poltrone in the, in the, uh, on the tomb. There isn't room for one. And it's a little hard to read the other words as well. In any case, bassino, which is used uniformly throughout Park Burnett and Mags, doesn't seem likely, since that translates from Italian as bombazine, which is a type of fabric. And I think what he had in mind was ass. Secondly, there are no copies that I've ever run across that have those words deleted. But it makes a lot of sense to a cataloger that they probably should have been deleted, uh, but they probably never were noticed. Now, even a minimal biograph bibliographical note in an early catalog may have some significance. Uh, another Baskerville reference here, uh, Gaskell, in writing his bibliography of Baskerville, ran across the forgery of the first uh, Baskerville, the Virgil, and tried to date it. And one of the ways he used to date that was by reference to sale catalogs of the late 1770s to identify when it was first mentioned that there was a true edition and, and a false edition of, of the uh, uh, Virgil. And he, in his first edition of that, made reference to the Askew sale of 1775 as saying that, that this copy was of the true edition. Uh, later in the, uh, in the second edition, or the reprint edition, he, he referred to an earlier 1772 reference in the Thistlethwaite catalog, which is a bookseller's catalog. Uh, another use of uh, modern catalogs that is not uh, possible with older ones, there frequently are better notes on provenance. But even in something as simple as a book plate description might very well be instructive. An example here, uh, not relating to Baskerville, is uh, Alan Hazen's article on the existence of the ring bookseller's ring at the Strawberry Hill sale, which was both based on uh, post-sale bookseller's catalogs of Thorpe and Strong. Uh, there's, that's in Studies in Bibliography in 1955, a very useful article. A catalog may also provide provenance information not or no longer in the book itself. Uh, Jonathan Hill and Tom Goldwasser have been working on, I guess over a long period of time, on locations of pounds uh, lume spento. Uh, Tom Goldwasser asked me uh, about a year ago about the John Quinn copy, which was sold in 1924, which he had not located. He also, also asked me about the E.W. Titus copy, which had sold at Park Burnett in 1951, and is, he said was now at the University of Victoria. The Park Burnett catalog didn't say anything about the pre-Titus provenance, but Titus's private library catalog, which was printed about 1930 in proofs only, I think. There are a lot of proofs, apparently. Uh, identified his source for that as the Quinn sale. 
So that ties down that particular copy. It might also have been tied down by going up to the University of Victoria and looking at the copy, but you don't always have to do that sort of thing, unless you're on an expense account. <clears throat> it's usually easier to identify a, de a described volume from modern catalog descriptions. Now, that's not just because there are improved descriptions, but one thing that uh, is perfectly obvious, but you don't think about it much, is the fact that the book has had much less time to change its binding and its condition from the time it was described. You look at a book in an 18th century catalog or even a 19th century catalog, it may very well not look at all like that description, even if it were properly described. You may have catalog illustrations that may clearly identify a particular copy or provide useful information on manuscript material, inscriptions, and that sort of thing. Uh, also, for modern catalogs, you have the existence of uh, American Book Prices Current uh, and book auction records, which give you a sort of an index to auction catalogs, which you didn't have before. And you also have Bookman's Price Index, uh, which has a somewhat less reliable index to dealers' catalogs. You do have to be a little careful about using these as indexes, however, and thinking you're getting everything that way. Uh, in working with the Mark Twain papers at the University of California, uh, they had tried to locate Twain letters by working from American Book Prices Current. Can't work from uh, BAR because, of course, they don't list manuscript material, but American Book Prices Current does. So they looked for manuscript for letters turning up under Twain in the uh, in American Book Prices Current, and then tried to find the catalog and uh, see if they knew about the letter. Uh, they did find some letters that way, but I wor worked the other way around. As now that once I knew that they were doing this, I started reading catalogs that I was going through anyway for Twain material, and turned up about uh, oh I suppose a couple of hundred Twain letters, which I turned the Xerox copies of the catalog over to them. And they found out that they only knew about 10% of those. The problem is that Twain letters uh, were not that highly regarded in the early part of the century and mostly turned up, tipped into copies of uh, books, which were, of course, described, or lotted in such a way that they weren't included in the records at all. So it's much better, if you, even though you have the availability of, of these indexes, if you can work from the catalogs directly, you're in much better shape. You're more likely to turn everything up. Now, of course, there's some features of modern catalogs which result in a loss of usefulness over the older catalogs. And the lack of a classification system which uh, Taylor used so extensively is certainly the major one. Some large catalogs still do use a classification system such as German auction catalogs. They'd almost have to. They're so big. And some booksellers do too. Uh, they almost have to because their readers won't go through a 32-page catalog without being directed to the area in which they're most interested. But the lack of, special, of classified catalogs is largely replaced by the specialized catalog, which is also happening with collections as well. In order to use the earlier classified catalogs that uh, Archer Taylor dealt with, you have to know how to find things in the classification system. And the classification systems 
cannot always be used by applying a modern expectation of what might be in that classification. Uh, so I thought I ought to discuss at some length the classification systems that are used in the earlier catalogs. Uh, I want to emphasize that this is very tentative. Uh, while I've looked at a lot of these catalogs, I haven't actually sat down and listed in parallel structure all of the various classification systems, uh, which should be done. I think it would be worth uh, a real study to find out how these things were classified uh, in various periods by various uh, auctioneers. There are a large number of classification systems used or identified as being used. Uh, Petzold lists 114 systems in his 1862 uh, book, Bibliotheca Bibliographica, uh, up to 1862. That book is 1866, sorry. Uh, Pignot describes 20 different systems. Of course, most of those are French. And uh, Etienne Somme describes six, all of which are French. That was in 1824. Now, not all of these systems were used for auctions or private library catalogs. Some are uh, systems of, uh, of knowledge that were used in encyclopedias and things of that sort. Uh, the first question I suppose that you would ask is how accurately did the auctioneers and catalog makers in general apply uh, the classification systems to the books they had in front of them? And when you consider the haste with which they had to prepare these catalogs, you'd have to think it wouldn't be too accurate. Actually, it's much more accurate on the whole than you would think. At least as best I can tell, it's fairly accurate. Uh, I think partly, especially in the French catalogs, that was, uh, uh, it was self-generating. Once the catalogs started developing a classification system in them, then the collectors started keeping their books in the same classification system, and then it was easy enough for a cataloger to prepare the catalog in that same system. Uh, but there obviously were lots of areas where things might be in one or two different places. For example, a bibliography on a subject might appear under bibliography or under the subject. Uh, the use of classified catalogs was quite different in different countries. In some cases, it was different within a country over very short periods of time. In some cases, it was quite consistent. The English, for example, uh, really didn't successfully introduce classifications to auction catalogs at all. Although some of the earlier booksellers' catalogs did have classifications. And Scott of 1674, for example, has a classification system. The Richard Smith sale of 1682, which is the uh, one of the two largest sales of the 17th century, had a modest attempt uh, uh, at a classification system. That system was, uh, the major classifications were these. Uh, theology and ecclesiastical history, history, medicine, English books, Roman Catholic English books, pamphlets, etc., and manuscripts. Now, in all probability, that classification system represents the order of the library in the house because this was a library that was sold from the house, and that's probably why it was done that way. It was also a very large library and almost had to be classified in some manner. Uh, Samuel Baker, one of the principal English auctioneers and, of course, the uh, 
beginning of the Sudby group, uh, rarely used classifications. Books were mainly by size uh, within each sale day. Things haven't changed a whole lot at Sotheby's, as a matter of fact. Sometimes they were alphabetical by author throughout the sale. Sometimes there was no particular sequence at all. Samuel Patterson, on the other hand, used a fairly detailed classification system in his largest auctions, uh, such as the Crofts sale of 1783 and the Beauclerk sale of 1781. Uh, They were not the same, but they were fairly detailed. In the Crofts catalog, uh, his classifications were these. The first was grammars and dictionaries, then bibliography, theology, classics, philology, criticism, etc., Italian books, Spanish and Portuguese books, probably couldn't tell the difference, French books, English poetry and miscellaneous, philosophy, history, politics, geography, and then manuscripts. Now, the worst kind of sale among English sales for finding a specific book uh, were the house sales, like the 1823 Beckford sale or the 1842 Walpole sale, where books were listed by room. The Walpole sale very carefully went not only by room, but by cabinet and by shelf. That's a fairly large library. Uh, But you might complain about that if you were looking for a specific book, but on the other hand, Wilmarth Lewis pointed out that the positional classification in the Walpole sale had its values in, in attempts to identify books from the library to reassemble it. So uh, what you really have to do is take the order in which the uh, catalog comes and make use of it. Uh, If you have two or three catalogs that uh, cover pretty much the same kind of material, have generally the same books, and they all have different classification systems or orders, you may be able to get uh, um, the information you want out of one or two of them, even if you can't get it out of a specific single catalog. Uh, as I mentioned uh, uh, before, the, the English books were generally alphabetical within sizes. Sometimes there were several alphabets. And uh, as an example, it's, it's well known how difficult it is to find anything in the Heber sale, uh, which goes to 13 parts plus a few uh, outside of England. On the other hand, the La Valliere sale, which is, is similar in size, is really not very difficult to find something in if you really want to. So that gets us to the French. The French were by far the most successful and persistent in the use of classified catalogs. Although Petzold lists several French classification systems, there really was only one worth spending any time on. Um, the canal or Bolio, or uh, according to Petzold's system, which was used for the De Tu catalog in 1679, had some influence in the 17th century, but not a whole lot. The system used in the Letelier catalog of 1693, which had 27 classes lettered from A to Z. Now, if anybody can tell me how they did that, I'd be interested in knowing, especially since they didn't even deal with a 26-letter alphabet in those days. Uh, But anyway, that classification system was specifically selected as the model for the 1724 catalog of Scion College Library. 
Prosper Marchand created a novel and apparently rather controversial system for the Foltrier inventory sale in 1709, and then he promptly left the country. Uh, this system had very little influence, even though Gabriel Martin, who was the first acknowledged uh, French auctioneer, acknowledged his debt to Marchand. Uh, the uh, Foltrier catalog, by the way, had the following classification system. First was human science, second was divine science, and third was science of events. So human science, of course, included literature and arts and sciences. Divine science was theology, and science of events was history. But it's a nice classification system, but apparently it wasn't very useful or used in any case. The system of Gabriel Martin, who, as I mentioned, was the first French book auctioneer, at least the first one we are sure was an auctioneer, was virtually unchanged for 200 years. In the uh, Bigot sale, uh, 1706, which was his first auction, he used the following major categories. One was theology, two was jurisprudence, three was philosophy, four was literature, and five was history. Later, philosophy was described as arts and sciences, which I think would describe better uh, what you might think was in there nowadays. And the categories were listed in French rather than Latin, but otherwise there was no substantial change in what was included in each class. This was so not only for Martin, but through all of his successors' careers as well. The subcategories were developed further from the Bigot sale by Martin, and the order was improved. Uh, the, the Bigot sale is in five parts. The first three by size, each fully classified. In other words, you had the folios with the five classifications, then the quartos with the five classifications, followed by octavo and smaller. Then omitted books, and finally manuscripts. Later, this order was reversed uh, in later catalogs so that you had the sizes separated within a class. So you had the theology, folio, quarto, and then octavo and smaller. Now, also the order was improved, apparently. Uh, the uh, preface to the Bigot sale says that about 50 octavos, 25 quartos, and four folios from each class were to be sold each day, which represented about 400 lots a day, starting from the end of each class, not from the beginning. I don't know why. So in using any of these catalogs, you should recognize uh, that the order of the sale of the books may not be the same as the order in the catalog itself. In some cases, they will say so. In other cases, they don't. Uh, de Bure is, is credited with a system of his own by Petzl, but it differs really only in a few details from the Martin system, uh, and those are details in the, within the categories. Pignot developed a system himself in which bibliology, that's right, bibliology, that's the word that he liked to use instead of bibliography, and a word that... Uh, uh, Barney Rosenthal has been trying to resurrect in, in, in his last couple of uh, book dealers' catalogs. Bibliology was the first category. But when Pino's sale 
came along in 1852, it was the Martin system that was used to describe his books. The Rothschild catalog of 1884 to 1920 in five volumes again uses the same classification system that was developed 200 years earlier. Uh, and it still gives the prime position to theology and jurisprudence, even though theology was only 50 pages out of the five volumes and jurisprudence only 10. From French to German catalogs, uh, we find that the uh, systems were much less uniform in, in Germany. Practically all of the major catalogs were classified simply because of the size, but they were not very uniform. The Bunau catalog, 1750 to 56, which is a private library catalog, three parts in seven volumes, had a very elaborate classification system. However, the, the uh, catalog is not complete even though it lists 42,000 volumes. And the elaborate uh, system was, uh, was usually highly regarded, but uh, I want to quote Dibden here. He wrote, highly and generally esteemed as is this extensive collection and methodically arranged catalog of Count Bunau's books, the latter has always appeared as being branched out into two numerous ramifications so as to render the, the discovery of a work under its particular class somewhat difficult without reference to the index. I am aware that what Camus says is very true, namely that nothing is more absurd than to quarrel about catalog making, and that every man ought to have a certain fixed and decisive ideas on, upon the subject. But simplicity and perspicuity, which are the grand objects in every undertaking, might have been, in my humble apprehension, more successfully exhibited than in this voluminous catalog. It represents overdone analysis. Yet those who are writing upon particular subjects will find great assistance in turning to the different works here specified, well worth an attentive perusal. Frankly, I can't quite understand Dibden uh, talking about overdone analysis, but there you are. The Ploto catalog, which was an auction held in Berlin in 1732, has the following major categories. Theology, philology, which includes rhetoric, poetry, grammars, dictionaries, and criticism, literary history, and I think I should insert here that literary history is where you find bibliography. Uh, in the French catalogs, this was almost always a division under history, and you have to go to the history sections and look under literary history, which comes somewhere between German and Bulgarian history, uh, and that's where you find all the bibliographical works. Then jurisprudence, medicine, philosophy, which included sciences, French, Italian, Spanish, and English books, general history, ecclesiastical history, German history, history of other countries, and that was the catalog, uh, that was the 1732 Berlin sale. In the Lehman catalog of 1740, which was the auction of a, uh, the books of a professor of medicine and physics at Leipzig, uh, a totally different format was used, which uh, would probably be more appropriate for the material he had, that is, he started with philosophy, then medicine, jurisprudence, and theology were last. Most catalogs, however, do have a conspectus of some sort or a similar outline uh, of the classification system. Once you've become familiar with the uh, system as it's laid out, you can extract a great deal of information from the classified catalogs. Archer Taylor complained a lot about the difficulty of finding antiquarian catalogs in libraries. This was a problem 
both of libraries not having the catalogs at all and of not properly cataloging them or not cataloging them at all. Uh, things, I think, are easier now than they were for Archer Taylor 30 years ago. There's been a movement of a lot of the earlier catalogs into special collections uh, on these wholesale uh, date type of moves that we've seen, uh, where they're more likely to remain and remain available. Uh, but this uh, movement often tends to lag behind the increase in antiquarian value, and so many of these catalogs have disappeared over the years from the general stacks of libraries. Also, there are a lot of 19th century auction and private library catalogs that are frequently very rare books and are not included in these wholesale transfers. Uh, there are also more reference works listing catalogs of antiquarian books than there were before. Uh, this increases their library interest and uh, leads them to be uh, identified in catalog where they might not have been before. Modern catalogs are now more frequently being kept, ones that are coming out today, but that hasn't been the case in the past. Even ordinary modern catalogs are beginning to command some price in the antiquarian market. A recent indication was the uh, publication of a catalog of catalogs, which some of you may have seen by the Bishop of Books. I think it's, I think it's Mr. Bishop, not Mr. Books. Uh, and he described that as the first such catalog of catalogs, which it is not. Uh, but it did describe a very large number of catalogs. And uh, all of us that have seen that particularly delighted in the description of the guinea pig catalog. This, this is an inside joke, as you might have guessed. <laughs> uh, anyway, the increase in value of these catalogs is probably the best motivation for their ultimate preservation. With, with NUC and other comprehensive checklists such as STC and ESTC and Foxen and so on coming along, the question arises, will these catalogs of antiquarian books still yield valuable information? Well, I suspect it's true that they'll probably yield fewer undiscovered printed books than used to be turned up in these catalogs. But that's certainly not so for manuscripts and autograph letters and things of that sort. And in, of course, anyone who is led by the size of NUC into thinking that it must contain nearly everything that exists is certainly uh, being fooled. Uh, I don't doubt that there's a, uh, there can't be any bibliophile who collects in any de depth beyond list collecting, who won't have something not an NUC, probably several somethings. Uh, NUC, of course, and similar catalogs are not subject indexed, and even if they were, somebody else's classification may very well supply some new meaning to a particular book. For example, a catalog that's contemporary with a book uh, may well indicate that a book is a satire or that it lists, for example, imaginary books, when lacking that information, you might think it lists things that, in fact, exist. I've always wondered whether anybody has ever cited in a scholarly work a book listed in the Fortzes catalog. Uh, if they haven't, it's probably only because the catalog is so rare, at least in its original edition, and of course it isn't deceptive in its subsequent editions. And besides that, it's pretty well known. In any case, if provenance means anything at all, 
and I will leave it to Nicholas Barker and Robin Hollis to convince you that it is, then uh, catalogs of antiquarian books will never lack value. Thank you. It is the happy custom of the House to retire immediately to the refreshments for informal conversation with the Speaker. And I hope you will all come down at least to take a look at the newly, almost newly, almost finished, redecorated uh, School of Library Service Lounge. Thank you very much for coming.